Welcome to Foothills Youth Podcast, where we help people follow Jesus. I hope these resources are a blessing to you. We are a student ministry based out of Northwest Calgary, and our hope, our desire, is that we see students become resilient disciples in a post-Christian nation. So may this podcast just be a blessing to you in your journey. Thank you. Wow. Um, I, I really, every time I drive anywhere in Canada, I just realize how big this country is. Because uh, I drove three hours to come here from Spruce Grove. Where I come from, I come from South Korea. Where I come from, three hours would get you from like the southern coast to almost all the way to the DMZ. Well, not quite three hours, more, more like four hours, five hours. Like people don't realize how close Seoul is from the border. It's like half an hour from, half an hour's drive from the edge of the city will get you to the border. That's how close it is. And it's a tiny little country. And then I come here, I'm just like, dude, like it's just, it's just endless. Yeah, um, that is really big. On that note, <laughs> hi, my name is Steve. Um, I wear a couple of hats. Like Pastor Andrew said, uh, I, I'm the Alberta director. Director, I'm just, I'm the only one in Alberta, really. But I'm, I'm Alberta director for Apologetics Canada, and th- there's a reason for that, actually. I'll tell you why. Uh, and I, the other hat I wear is I'm, I'm also pastor of, of Apologetics at Spruce Grove Alliance. Um, what happened was I... Uh, I actually am from BC, I'm from Vancouver, Abbotsford, that area. But last year, my family moved to Spruce Grove to be closer to family. My wife is from around that area. And uh, her extended family, they all live in Calgary, so we come down here from time to time. But since I moved to Spruce Grove, uh, the way Apologetics Canada works, we insist on operating out of a local church because we firmly believe that the local church is God's plan A and there's no plan B. So. That's what we want to do. And so I approached the Spruce Grove Alliance. Hey, can I work with you guys? Um, little did I know that meant I had to actually be part of the pastoral staff. I wasn't planning on becoming a pastor, so I don't actually feel like one, but people keep calling me a pastor. I'm just like, I, I don't know what to do with that. Anyway, why apologetics was one of the questions that Pastor Andrew actually asked me as we were having dinner together. And that's a really great place for me to start because See, how many of you here grew up in the church? Yeah, quite a, quite a few hands go up, right? I, I myself have grown up in the church. I grew up a pretty devout Roman Catholic. Um, now, whether you're in the Catholic church or Protestant church, it doesn't matter. I find that the experience is almost, not, I wouldn't say universal, but it's very common. I've always felt that the church has been great at telling me what to believe, but not why. Right? How do you know God is real? And seriously, you're going to believe that some guy came from a virgin and that this guy died and then came back from the dead? What, what do we worship a Jewish zombie? Or like, what, what is this, right? <laughs> like, so at some point, because you grew up in the church, you sometimes don't appreciate just how bizarre Christianity is. How bizarre it is. Right? And of course, when you take this out to our friends who don't believe in, how many of you have an atheist friend, who, a friend who doesn't believe in God, right? Now, quite a few hands go up. Like, you bring that to your atheist friend, of course they're going to look at you like you've got three eyes or something like that, right? It, it is bizarre. And, and I, my, my hope for you is that I hope you don't lose that sense of just how strange Christianity is. Because it's, it's precisely because of those strange things that it actually makes probably the best sense of the world. As far as I'm concerned, Christianity makes the best sense of the world that, that we're experiencing. Uh, now, what happened with me was, I grew up in the church really not knowing the intellectual substance behind the faith. All I was told was, you just need to have more faith. At some point, that just wasn't good enough for me. At some point, I couldn't tell my friends, right? Like, I, I'm like, I, I don't know why I should trust in the Bible, and I can't make a case for it to my friends. And guess what? My faith doesn't mean anything to them, right? And here's, the, here's, even, here's where it gets even worse, because in my early 20s, I was hanging out with a lot of my old high school friends. Now, I went to public school. I'd say about nine out of 10 friends were atheists and agnostics, so they either didn't believe in God, or they're, they're like, I don't know if he exists. I don't know if he's real. 
Now, the funny thing was most of them, almost all of them, had come from some kind of a church background. But by the time I knew them, they had all walked away, right? So they, they already come at me with a bit of a been there, done that mentality, right? You, you might have experienced that before. Uh, they think maybe 12 years of maybe not even of Sunday school makes them an expert in Christianity. Somehow, I, I find that bizarre, but because uh, uh, I, I know I wasn't an expert in all things Christian, right? When, when I uh, finished all 12 years in the church in Sunday school. But anyway, early 20s, I was hanging out a lot with my friends. They come at me with bingo down the mentality, and they would always do this. They would never ask me questions, because again, they think they've been there, they've done that. So you know what they did? Maybe you can appreciate this. They would always make comments within my earshot. Yeah, I see some heads nodding here, right? Isn't that frustrating? Like, <laughs> do you? So now I'm like, if a friend were to do that, I probably would have asked, okay, I heard you make that comment. Was that for me to hear? And if so, do you want to talk about it? Or are you just going to make comments, right? And I don't have to be mean about it. I could just ask, hey, I heard what you said. If you actually want to talk about it, I'd be happy to talk with you. Now, here's the thing, though. At the time, I didn't know how to answer these questions, objections. You know, how do you know, you know, isn't the Bible the translation of a translation of a translation? My goodness, the Greek New Testament is, well, it's written in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, so already it's, it's a translation. How do you know that you have what Jesus spoke and so on and so forth, right? I had no idea how to deal with that. And here's the thing, lies told to you enough times will start sounding really convincing. And I was convinced. So I walked away from the faith and I called myself an atheist for a while. Now later I came back to the faith through a series of events, what I can only describe as a Holy Spirit encounter, but here was the problem. You know what that Holy Spirit encounter didn't do for me? Was answer these questions. <laughs> What it gave me was the conviction that, yeah, I do believe that this is true. Now I need to find the answers. See how that works? It's never just your heart experience, and it's never just your mind. It's not just your head knowledge. It's both. Because I tell you, man, like, if I hadn't gone through the work of actually studying some of this stuff, I guarantee you by now I would have started questioning my experience back then that brought me back to the faith, and I probably would have rationalized and walked away all over again. Now, the reason I'm in the apologetics ministry is this. After having gone through that whole fiasco, I thought to myself, dude, if I went through that, somebody else is. And I thought to myself, geez, you know, if somebody had just come along when I was in high school or something like that, just walked through some of this stuff with me, that could have been, here's the good news, <coughs> completely preventable. You don't have to go through that. So, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I, I have a lot of stuff to go through. I probably won't be able to go through all of it with you. In fact, I'm pretty sure I won't be able to, but I, we are going to have some time of Q&A afterwards. So, as you're listening to this stuff, just, you know, if you get some questions in your mind or something that your friend brought up or something like that, just keep them in the back of your minds and then Bring them out during Q&A. I'd be happy to engage with you on this stuff. Um, I, I don't have all the answers, certainly not, uh, but I might be able to. So I, I don't like to call it Q&A, actually. I, I like to call it Q&R, questions and responses. I, I might be able to give you a response of some sort. Uh, whether you find it satisfying or not, I'll leave that to you. Okay, so let's get to it. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about what atheism is and isn't. Okay. And then we're going to talk a little bit about um, how we might engage our atheist friends. Some conversational tips and tactics, just briefly. And then if we have time, um, one of my areas of interest is in ethics, morality, those kinds of things. And that can be a really kind of a good way to engage our atheist friends. A lot of it, our atheist friends believe that morality is objective, like that it is binding on everybody. It's just not our preference, right? There is such a thing as morality out there, and we need to follow it. And if that's the case, that's a great place to start a conversation. Hopefully, we'll get to that. We'll see. So what is atheism? Okay. Before we say what atheism is, we actually have to talk about what theism is. 
Okay, the word theism comes from the Greek theos, which means God, and ism, belief. So it's it's a belief in God. Okay, straightforward, right? Everybody get that? Uh, if you're a Christian here, are you a theist? Yes. Thank you for whoever gave me that answer vocally. You restored my faith in humanity. Thank you for that. Um, now, atheism is the opposite of that. So it comes from the Greek atheos, which means godless or without God, and then is unbelief. So it is actually the belief that God does not exist. It is, it is the belief that God does not exist. And this, this becomes important later, and I'll tell you why um, in a bit. Okay, let's move on then. Now, atheism is different from agnosticism. Agnosticism. Now, that's a tongue twister. What on earth is, a, is agnosticism? Anybody know? The belief that there may or may not be a God out there, but they don't believe that there exists. They don't really know which one it is. Okay, almost, almost very close. Agnosticism means, I don't know. Right, so if atheists are the people who say there is no God, agnostics will say, I don't know. But um, agnostics, you can be agnostic about a, very, a lot of different issues. Like for example, I am an agnostic when it comes to baseball. I don't follow baseball at all, so uh, I, I don't know, you know, Chicago Cubs, you know, are they gonna make the World Series? I, I have no idea, I'm an agnostic on that issue. I just don't know, right? So you can be an agnostic on lots of different issues. It could certainly be applied to theism, right? So people who say, I don't know, they're the agnostics. People who say God doesn't exist, those are the atheists. So those are actually not one and the same thing. Although when you come across a lot of agnostics, sometimes you can't tell them apart because they talk almost the same, okay? Now, atheism has a, has a bedfellow called naturalism. What is naturalism? Okay, naturalism is the belief that this physical world is all there is. There's no God, no souls, no angels, demons, or anything like that, okay? So th those are basically cousins. They, they kind of, they're twins. They follow, the most, most atheists, I would say, are naturalists. Okay, let's get some of these terms out of the way. Now, um, what better way to learn about atheism than to actually hear it from an atheist? Right, so here's a little video for you. It's about five, six minutes, and you'll kind of be able to get a glimpse of how an atheist thinks. Here we go. Just want to sin. This one makes absolutely no sense. So let me get this straight. The only reason you're not doing anything bad is because you're afraid of God? I'm glad that you're religious then, because, I don't know, for some reason, I can be a good person without, you know, fear of hellfire. No atheist becomes an atheist because they just have this deep desire to do bad, horrible things. We become atheists because that's where the evidence takes us. And that's the only reason we become atheists. Anyone who says they became an atheist, I've never met an atheist, by the way, who said they became an atheist because they just really wanted to have premarital sex. You're an atheist? You don't act like an atheist. What the hell does that mean? Like, what did you think I was gonna do? Punch you and take your money? <laughs> feeds off of this idea that atheists are inherently immoral, that there's no moral compass to us, so we must be these horrible people that just wanna do bad, bad things. Um, and it's offensive because if you replace atheist like oh you don't you're an atheist you don't act like one if you replace that with anything else you would understand immediately how offensive that was like oh you're not acting Jewish just think because if anyone said that to you like oh you're a Christian or you're not acting like one um, I think you would probably be uh, a little upset by that as well I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. This is a popular uh, Christian apologist line that, you know, I would be an atheist, but I don't have enough faith. To me, it takes a lot more faith to believe that, you know, someone was born from a virgin and he died and then came back to life and he walked on water and he, you know, you could touch people and they're healed. Um, all of the Christian, you know, BS that we hear constantly, that takes faith. That takes faith because there's no evidence that any of that actually happened. 
it never happens these days, you know, it all happened thousands of years ago before, you know, video cameras and YouTube. But it doesn't take faith to be an atheist. <laughs> Have I heard about Jesus? No. <coughs> never. Why don't you tell me about Jesus? What he was he was born from a virgin? How does that work exactly? And wait, he rose up from the dead? How, how exactly does that work? Because I don't see that happening anymore. We all know about Jesus. We all know about the Bible. Many of us have read the Bible. Many of us were Christians growing up. So we all have a very good understanding of religion and Christianity and Jesus and the Bible. And guess what? We found reasons to reject it all. Where will I go when I die? I actually like this question. I think it's silly to ask it because I think there's an easy answer to it. But I think this is a fair question. Where will you go when you die? I think it's probably the same place you were before you were born. Which is to say, you just weren't here. And that was it. And the world moved on without you, and, and that's okay. But people ask this question as if we're worried about what's going to happen when we die. And I'm not worried about that. You know, I hope that I can leave some sort of mark on this earth so that, you know, people I love uh, can be helped and, and people I don't know uh, can be helped by something I did in this lifetime. But I'm not really worried about where I go when I die. I'm not going to be in heaven. I'm not going to be in hell either, by the way, so there's that. But I'm not really worried about, I, I don't sit around thinking, oh man, when I die, where am I going to go? Don't worry about what's going to happen in your afterlife. Don't worry about where you were before you were born. Just enjoy this life and, and appreciate it and do what you can with it. Yeah. Really, you just got to accept it. Isn't evolution just a theory? No, it's not just a theory. The only people who ever say this are people who don't really understand what a scientific theory means. A theory in science means all the evidence points in that direction. All of it. And there's no evidence that contradicts it. And evolution passes that test right now. They haven't found evidence to discredit evolution. Like gravity is a theory. Um, and evolution is a theory in that sense. The reason we don't say it's a fact is because you can't really conclusively show it. All you could do is pile evidence after evidence after evidence and show that it works. And so far, all the scientists have done that. And overwhelmingly, the scientific community says evolution is not an issue. We may debate some of the you know, details about evolution, but by and large, the actual idea of evolution, that you know we evolved, there's natural selection involved, there's sexual selection and all that, that's not in dispute. That's not in dispute anywhere other than like a Christian megachurch. But where did the universe come from? Well, look, I'll be honest with you. I don't know where the universe came from, but neither do you. Christians don't know where the universe came from. The best answer they can give you is, God did it. God created it all, and that's why we're here. And okay, so then I want to know where God came from, because they don't ever have an answer to that. They just say, oh, God's always been here, as if that's okay. That's, that's, you can always say God was always here, and no one has to question that, which is silly. Like, where did the universe come from? We could say it was the Big Bang, because the evidence all points in that direction. But then the natural follow-up question is, well, what came before that? What was there before the Big Bang? I don't know. The evidence isn't there. But nobody knows the answer to that. The best we could do is to say, well, here's everything we know, and this is the best guess we can come up with. But that's honest. And that's why I appreciate that answer. Because it, to me, that's a lot more truthful than saying, well, sure, we don't have evidence for it. But the Bible says this is how it all happened. Therefore, it must have been that way. My name is Hemant Mehta. I write for FriendlyAtheist.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Please leave a comment below and become part of this discussion. All right. So, what did you notice about some of the things that you said? Or actually, before that, how many of you felt your blood pressure rise just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I see a few hands go up. Yeah, that's honest. Hey, that, that's perfectly normal. Okay. Now, what did you notice about some of the things that he said? Whether something that he said or his attitude or, or whatever. Yes? He was all, like, <coughs> making his examples with Christians, only Christians. 
Yeah, uh, the, the reason for that is this video is actually a title. You, you didn't get to see the title of the video. It's actually 15, 15 things Christians shouldn't say to atheists. And that's why he's actually using examples for, for Christians specifically. But yes, thank you. Good observation. Yes? You made the assumption that science and Christianity can't work together. Right. The assumption that science and Christianity don't, you know, don't work together or science somehow uh, disproves almost, right? It's, they're in conflict somehow. Now, here's a point that uh, a lot of people don't quite understand or remember. Where did modern science come from? Does anybody know his or her history? Where did modern science come from? Okay, who, who remembers the name Galileo? Yeah? Okay. Because we hear about Galileo in our science classes, right? And what's the story? Right. Thank you. So before uh, Copernicus and Galileo came, came along, uh, it's the Aristotelian and Ptolemaic physics. And all that it means is they saw the Earth was, uh, they, they saw that the, uh, they found that the Earth was in the middle of the universe and things like that. But it was Copernicus and Galileo that, that kind of came along and said, actually, no, it's the sun that's in the middle and we're kind of revolving around it, right? And so the, the, the story goes that the church didn't like that idea because they wanted the earth to be in the middle of the universe because they wanted it to be important. And so then they imprisoned and tortured Galileo to force him to recant. You know, that's the story. Now, that's not true. <laughs> okay? Here, here's, here's what's happening. The idea that the earth is in the middle is actually not a good thing, according to Aristotelian physics. Because according to the physics, all the heavy stuff in the universe gets pulled to the middle, according to that system. And that means the Earth in that system is the cosmic septic tank. <laughs> yeah? So for the Earth to be not in the middle anymore is actually an improvement. Right? It doesn't actually make it less significant. Here's another thing. Uh, the church never tortured Galileo. And the reason they persecuted him wasn't because of his scientific views. I mean, it was, they used it as an excuse, but here, listen to this. Galileo actually wrote this book called Concerning Two World Systems or something like this. So he's talking about the geocentric model, heliocentric model, and there are three characters that represent different things. One represents the old geocentric model, another character representing the new heliocentric model, and then there's the third character called Simplicio, the simpleton or the idiot, and guess who that represented? The Pope. <laughs> of course he gets into trouble, right? He was a bit of a, oh, I gotta, I gotta be careful because I used this word once and apparently it's uh, unbecoming of a pastor, but he, he, he's, he, he's something of a dirtbag, okay? Um, but here's the thing that you never hear in the science classrooms. Galileo Galilei was a Christian, yeah? He was a Christian, and you know who else was Christian? The early fathers, the, the fathers of the uh, modern scientific revolution in the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, let's see, who are they? Um, Copernicus, Christian. Galileo, Christian. Isaac Newton, Christian. Francis Bacon, Christian. Roger Bacon, Christian, right? Like, Johannes Kepler, Christian. In fact, the, the modern, modern science, not the ancient science like the ancient Greeks, modern science came out of the university which arose out of the cathedral schools in medieval Europe. It is the church that gave us the modern day institution of the university, which is where we got modern science from. So if you actually listen to guys like Johannes Kepler, he was all like, it is, it is our right and it is our duty to look at the patterns in the universe and things like that to get a glimpse into the mind of God. It glorifies him. It is their faith that drove the engine of modern-day science. And here's another thing that people forget. Um, people think Christians tend to be anti-intellectual. Anti that's, that's not true. Uh, the Big Bang Theory he mentioned, you, you know who came up with that? 
It was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest by the name of George Lemaitre, along with the Russian scientist Alexander Friedman in 1927. They came out with the theory of the expanding universe. Of course, as time goes along, if the universe is expanding, if you go back in time, what do you see the universe do? Shrink, right? Yeah. It was a Belgian Roman Catholic priest, and the name Big Bang was given by an atheist scientist, Sir Fred Hoyle, to make fun of it. Because atheist scientists understood the theological implications of Big Bang. If the universe had a birthday, right? Then if the universe is not eternal, whatever started the universe has to be, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through this real quick. I do a whole talk on this, but it has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, right? Unchanging, immensely powerful, and personal. They didn't want to go there. And so the name Big Bang is actually, oh, it's a Big Bang. It is a Big Banger kind of. It was supposed to be pejorative. Okay? Now, um, the university, you know the, do you know what the model, motto of U of A is? The motto is whatsoever is true. You know where that comes from? It comes from the Bible. U of C, much the same thing. I, I, I forget what the... I turn my eyes to hope. Ah, yes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, right? Like, that's from the Psalms. Christians built that school. Uh, Oxford, right? The Lord is my light. Right? People forget that Christians built these schools. Schools like Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Yale, like these were actually built to train pastors for Pete's sake, right? And so it's, it's not at all true to say that Christianity is anti-intellectual, anti-science kind of thing, but you can kind of see that bit of that, right? Uh, I mean, and he harps on evolution a lot, and I mean, the word evolution is really slippery, so you gotta be careful with it, but anyway. What else did you notice about Mr. Meta, whether his attitude or something he said. Evolution is a science, yeah, I, I mean, again, evolution is a very slippery word, right? So here's what we need to understand. There's what we call microevolution. When we say evolution, it could be microevolution. So microevolution is just descent with modification, right? I mean, it's like, it's just a small scale changes. So I, I married the most wonderful woman in the world, uh, a message brought to you by a completely objective husband. Um, so we got married, we had children, and so when we have our daughter, I'm Korean, and my wife is Caucasian, and so then I look at my daughter, and I go, you're not like me, and you're not like your mom, or you're like the both of us, but whatever, whatever the case, you are not us, you're different from us in some ways, right? I mean, I look at her and I go, yeah, of course she's different. There has been change with descent going down the generation. So I, I get it. So my boss always says this. I'm like, yeah, I get it. A fluorescent pink squirrel is not going to survive in the forest for very long. I get that. But then there's what we call macroevolution. And this is the idea that these small scale changes all add up such that we start going through different species. Like a fish becomes a land animal, which becomes a bird, that sort of a thing. That's what people typically have in mind. This is what's known as the common ancestry, right? And so the idea that we all came from this single self-replicating cell in the primordial soup, right? That's actually a bit in dispute. It's not just in Christian megachurches, like he says. There are actually credentialed scientists that are challenging that idea. So in fact, when he said a theory is, a scientific theories, when all the evidence points to it, that's not exactly true either. Science is always provisional. Science can never make 100% certain claims. It's just, that's just not how science works. And philosophers of science know this, right? So uh, he, he exaggerated a few claims there. And having said that at any rate, evolution just by default doesn't prove that Christianity is false. 
So, okay, so let's say evolution, macroevolution even, is true. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Because I can make a case for that historically. Okay, you, you see what I mean, right? What that, what that means, let's say common ancestry, all that stuff is true. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If the answer is yes, all that it means is now we might have to rethink how we understand Genesis 1 to 3, or 1 to 11, really. That's all it means. So the, for me, the, the hill that I'm going to die on is did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the hill that I'm going to die on. right? But so often, it seems to me that our atheist friends like to use that example to, to kind of discredit the Bible. But that's not entirely fair, I don't think. Maybe you might cast some doubt on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, maybe. But that's the first 11 chapters of the Bible. There's a whole, the rest of it. Um, at any rate, what else did you notice? Seemed like a really nice guy to talk to. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of hear a little bit of snark here and there. His language was at, was at times questionable, but whatever. He's, he's an atheist, he can, he, can do, he can do that if he wants to. Um, it's, but he is, when he calls him, styles himself friendly atheist, yeah, he's a lot friendlier than somebody like Richard Dawkins, right? That evolutionary biologist from Oxford, he's the kind of guy, he's the militant guy, right? He's like, you need to mock religious believers, and you, need, you can't give them any credibility whatsoever, right? And this was part of his speech at the so-called Reason Rally in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. Like so much for reason, but okay. But Hammond Meta, like he he seems like a pretty nice guy, right? And those are actually the guys that are even harder to talk to. Yes. Even then, though, I feel like there was still some mocking tone, like in his voice, like when he was going mm -hmm. back to even Jesus and being sarcastic, right? Like yeah. there's definitely some cynicism, cynicism. Cynicism. Yeah. There. There's. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely some kind of a bit of a snide in there, right? Like he, he makes some snide comments here and there. He's a bit sarcastic. Uh, but here, here's, here's something that might be helpful for us to know. When we're talking with our friends who don't believe what we believe, don't be surprised if they think it's really bizarre and have a bit of a mocking tone. What you need is a pretty thick skin, actually. Don't let them get under your skin when they do that. And quite frankly, they don't necessarily mean to get you upset. They just think it's really bizarre that we actually think a dead guy came back to life, right? Um, so yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so I, I could go on talking, but here's um, uh, another thing that I noticed from the video. Did you notice him kind of emphasizing that part about morality, right? Atheists actually often feel, well, they, they do feel, because they are, a minority that's a bit persecuted. And you might be thinking, what? No, we're the persecuted ones, you might think. Actually, atheists got it worse. Because from their point of view, like you look at the American politics, for example, and you look at Congress, my goodness, how many of them are Christians? How many of them are atheists, right? Their voice isn't being represented very well. Right? And in, in cer certain places, if you come out as an atheist, you face a lot of social pressure. Right? So they actually often feel like they're the, the persecuted minority, and I think a, a good amount of that is justified. And often, often, they are regarded as, just because they don't believe in God, people sometimes think, oh, they, if they don't believe in God, they must be totally immoral, right? They have no moral compass, they must be horrible people, and they often get that, right? And that, that's why a lot of atheists like Hemant likes to emphasize on the fact that I'm, I'm a decent guy, I don't believe in God, but I'm a decent guy, right? Now, there's a whole talk that I can do on this, but let me just really condense it. There's a difference between the question, what is morality? versus how do I know it, okay? So what our atheist friends are often saying is, I know morality without God, 
Notice they're saying, that's, that's, like, I don't need God to know it. I don't need religion to know what's right or wrong. Okay, that's a different question from what is morality. Okay, um, I'll actually show you a video a little later, but just keep that in the back of, of your mind. And, and connected to that whole thing, you might have seen him emphasize, you know, like, I don't need God to be moral, right? Um, in fact, why would I get my morality from a book written some 2,000 years ago by a bunch of Bronze Age, who knows what's, right? Well, not Bronze Age, I mean, that goes back farther, but um, that's sort of their view of the Bible. It's an antiquated, irrelevant book. It's outdated. Okay, let's move on a little bit. So here, here's a concept that we need to understand. Remember earlier I went through all the definitions and things like that? Here's why. Did I turn it off? There we go. Burden of proof. Have, have you ever heard that before? Burden of proof. Yeah? What's, what's burden of proof? Yes? Right, whoever bears the burden of proof has to, well, show that their claim is true, right? So burden of proof simply is the responsibility that you have to show that your claim is true, okay? The responsibility you have to show that your claim is true. So if that's the case, who bears the burden of proof? Sorry? It's, it's them, could be. You're, you're like halfway there. You're it's both. Both. Okay, both. Almost there. <laughs> Why do I say that? It's because whoever makes a claim bears the burden of proof. So it could be both. If both are making um, a truth claim, then they both have to show that their claim is true. If one of them does it, then it's, it's one of them one of us that has to actually bear the burden of proof. Now, why is this important? Because these days, our atheist friends redefine what atheism means. So this is how it plays out. It, uh, atheism traditionally meant the belief that God doesn't exist, but these days what they say is, um, no, that's not what atheism means. Atheism means lack of belief in God or in a God. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's just that, well, I don't, I don't have any beliefs either way about whether God exists or not. That's the default position that you start with. And if you want me to believe that God exists, you have to show me that God is real. See how that works? Then in this case, who bears the burden of proof? Theists do, right? Exclusively. Theists have to prove to the atheist. Now, there's a lot of problems with this particular definition. If you actually read any philosophical literature on it, that's not how they define it. They'll say it's actually the negation that God exists. So what that means is they actually make a positive claim that God does not exist, and so they actually have to bear the burden of proof. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me so far? So good? Okay. So this is how it works. Now, if this is the case, then uh, here, here's one problem. It proves too much. What, what, what does that mean? Now, if lack of belief in a God is atheism, whoever or whatever lacks belief in God must be an atheist, right? So a little baby would be an atheist. But why stop at humans? Right? A cat or a dog would be an atheist. But why stop with organic, or why stop with animals? Why not plants? A tree would be an atheist. Why stop with organic matter? What about rocks and water? Those would be atheists. Even an outhouse would be an atheist, right? Like anything could be an atheist. So it, it just casts the net too broadly. The word becomes useless. Here's, here's another part of it too. Um, so if our atheist friends say, I merely lack belief in God, you have to prove to me that God exists, this actually cuts both ways. I could tell my friend, I remember earlier I said, atheism and naturalism are bedfellows, right? So I could say this, I could say, I'm an awe naturalist. You have to prove to me that naturalism is true. See how that works? 
It cuts both ways. So what we need to do is get our atheist friends to tell us why they believe the way they do, right? Because they have, at the end of the day, they have a worldview just like we do, right? We, we look at a world a certain way, guess what they do? They look at a world a certain way, and they have to give us an account of that just as we have to give them an account of that. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, let me go through some stuff really quickly, some uh, conversational tips, okay? First, let's have a realistic expectation, okay? Now, it used to be that uh, people in Canada mostly were Christians and they believed the Bible to be the Word of God. And so it made sense for you to, even when you come across, uh, come across a stranger, just take the Bible, go to John 3.16, and it meant something to them. Does that make sense? Yeah? But today, you can't take your Christian worldview for granted anymore, right? I was actually talking to Pastor Andrew about my boss, who went out for lunch with this one guy. He was kind of raised in an atheist home in West Vancouver, a very, very secular place, right? So they go have lunch, and they start talking, and this guy says, so Andy, I have a question for you, yeah? Every year Easter comes around, I hear about Jesus. So tell me, what's Jesus got to do with Easter? <laughs> yeah. Wow is right. Now, th this, granted, this is a bit of an extreme case, right? But this is the kind of the thing that we're dealing with here in some ways, right? We can't take Christianity for granted anymore. So you can't just open up the Bible and say, here you go, right? They, they, they don't even believe in the Bible to begin with, so you have to start somewhere else. So have a long-term kind of view as you're having conversations. And don't expect this quick five-minute conversion, you know, dr dropping down on his knees, weeping kind of thing. Don't expect that to happen right away anyway. Uh, who knows what the Holy Spirit will do later down the road. But uh, I think our goal should be a little bit more modest. What we want to do is put a pebble in their shoes. Put a pebble in their shoes. Just give them something to think about. Annoy them just a little bit in a good way, right? So they kind of hobble away thinking about what you just told them. So let's have a realistic expectation. Secondly, have a genuine curiosity about the person that you're talking to, okay? Let's not turn our friends into projects, is what I'm saying. They're, they're not our conversion projects. They're our friends, and we should have some genuine curiosity about people. So uh, sometimes it, it means talking to them about things that have nothing to do with the gospel directly. So sometimes, you know, I would come across somebody, like, because I'm, I'm a visible minority, sometimes it kind of works in my favor. I feel a little bit freer to ask somebody. I went to Crossroad Church in Red Deer once. That's where my mother-in-law used to attend. I was invited to speak there, and there was this lady. I could not put my finger on her ethnicity. So guess what I did? I came up to her. We got introduced. We started talking, and I said, so I'm, I'm just curious. What, what's your ethnic background? Like, do you get that a lot, like, people can't really put their finger on where you're from. She's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, uh, so, so what's your background? She said, well, my, my mom is white, my dad is black, but he's from like Jamaica or something like that, right? Caribbean and somewhere, somewhere in there. And, and so, uh, so then I had a follow-up question. I, again, I, I wanted to know more about her, so I was like, okay, so I have a follow-up question if you don't mind. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. And she said, so when I talk to my friends who are of European descent, and I ask them, so what's your ethnic background? I'll sometimes get, oh, I'm like part Scottish and part French, you know, that sort of thing. Your black side of your family, how do you talk about that? Have you ever wondered about that? Because I, I, was, I, was, I was just curious, so I asked her. I said, oh yeah, you know, because of slavery and everything, we often just kind of talk about in terms of what state we're from, you know, that, that sort of thing. I learned something new that day. Right? So just have a genuine curiosity about that person. And the idea is you want to get to know them and give them a sense that, yeah, this guy actually cares about me, right? This guy actually wants to know about me. People love to talk about themselves, and you can take full advantage of that. I bless you in that effort, okay? Okay, um, the third one is ask clarifying questions. Now. 
I can't give you a whole lot of apologetic nuggets tonight because I have some limited time here. But um, there is a way to have a fruitful, productive conversation even when you don't know a lot of apologetics or philosophy, theology, that sort of thing. And you can do that by asking some good clarifying questions. If you know how to do that well, you can stay in the driver's seat in the conversation without being overbearing. So what might be some of those questions? Let me give you just three examples. Uh, one is, what do you mean by blank? What do you mean by that? When you're talking to your friends, sometimes when they use a word and you use the same word, you could mean something totally different. Okay, You could mean something totally different. So you need to clarify your terms. And so if my atheist friend says, well, you know, I, I just go one, you might have heard this, right? Steve, you are an atheist when it comes to all these other gods. You don't believe in Zeus, you don't believe in Thor or Krishna or you know, Marduk or you know, Kamosh or anything, right? Me, I'm just like you, except I just go one god further. I don't believe in Yahweh, okay? So then I'm thinking, okay, when he says God, means something very different. Okay, so I want to, so tell me, what do you mean by God? And I guarantee you the kind of idea of God that, that my friends have is like one of those polytheistic gods like Zeus or Thor, right? Those gods that are within time and space, and the one that I'm talking about is the one that's outside of time and space. It's like talking about you know, on the one hand, talking about uh, Pippin and Mary, right, from Lord of the Rings, and then on the other hand, we're talking about Tolkien. That's how different it is, okay? So when we're talking about God, we mean something totally different, okay? So stuff like that, you need to ask questions, okay, if there's usually, if there's a disconnect in your conversation, it's usually because you're using the same words, but mean something totally different. I had this with Mormon missionaries when they came to my door. I'm just like, well, come on in. You guys deliver it. This is awesome. Let's talk, right? Um, but, uh, uh, but I said, hey, look, you know, I'd love to have some conversations with, with you. You and I both know, you know what it's like to be misrepresented by others. So why don't I ask you some questions about Mormonism, and you guys as insiders tell me what you think, right? Now here's the thing, Mormons will use a lot of the same phrases that we use. They believe in salvation by grace. They believe in salvation by faith and all that kind of stuff. Now here's the problem. I might ask, what do you mean by salvation by grace? You know what they mean by that? They mean at the end of history, everybody is going to be raised to life, right? What is this? Oh, excuse me. Uh, it's the Conservative Party of Canada. No, I'm not gonna give you money. Um, <laughs> I, I get these calls like nonstop <laughs> these days because it's the election season. My goodness, I'm just like, dude, I'm already like I already helped you guys out. Like, no more. Um, <laughs> now that you know what what my political leaning is. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, at the end of history, everybody's raised to life. That's by grace. But then, if you want to get to what they call exaltation, where you're glorified, now you have to do your work. Right? What we mean by salvation by grace is totally different. We don't mean the general resurrection at the end of history. Right? See how that works? You have to clarify your terms. So this is very helpful. What do you mean by blank? Now, next. How did you come to that conclusion? Or why do you believe that? What this question does is it gets the other person to bear the burden of proof. If they make a claim, get them to back it up. Right? And you don't have to be mean about that. It's fair. If you make a claim, you should back it up. If you think God is real, you should be able to back that up, right? But that, the same thing goes for our friends who are atheists and agnostics. When they say, you know, uh, religion is the number one cause for violence, right, in the world. Okay, well, why do you believe that? And, and then just let them talk. You don't have to fill in anything else. Just let them talk. Right? It, they might feel a little uncomfortable, and that's fine. Right? You're not just being mean. You're trying to get at how this person came to that conclusion. Right? Just ask them. Next, 
have you considered the possibility that this is where you put in your own views? So instead of saying, this is what you should believe, you're saying, have you considered this? So you're actually passing the ball to your friend and asking him or her to consider your position, which is a polite thing to do, rather than shoving your beliefs down their throat, so to speak, you're asking them to consider this, right? So have you considered the, so if my friend said religion is the number one cause of violence in the, in the world, um, have you considered that, uh, that this one book called Encyclopedia of Warfare uh, by Phillips and Axel, I think, uh, are the names of the authors. And in it, they actually made a record of, like they, they kind of pulled all the records together of all the warfares that have been written now from way back when till present day, uh, or at least when the book was written. And what they noticed was uh, religion was the cause of about 7% of all the wars <coughs> in history, 7%. And almost 3% of that was by Islam, right? And so that means 93% of the time, it was for reasons like politics, nationalism, racism, greed, power, like all of these other reasons. Religion being the direct cause of this, any kind of wars and things like that, that's actually like 7%. And they're not Christians saying this, right? So you might wanna say, have you considered the possibility, like have you read this particular Encyclopedia of Warfare, like, what do you think of this? They, they're saying that 7% of wars recorded in history were caused by religion directly. That, that's a fair thing, okay? So I hope, I, 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 there's so much more that I wish I could go over with you right now, but I think I'm gonna stop now. And if you guys have any burning questions that you just wanna kind of wrestle with here together, I would welcome that. Yes, sir. Okay. Right. So the question is, um, what if I'm not comfortable talking to my friends because I feel like I don't know enough? I, I don't have any expertise in that. that. That's fair. And that's actually one of the reasons why I'm giving you some of these questions. Because you're just asking questions, right? You're not, you know. And, and here's another thing. When you don't know the answer to something, just say, I don't know. Actually, that's a, that's a good question. I never really thought of it before. You know what? Your atheist friends will respect you a lot more when you admit that you don't know something than you try to wing it, right? Because then it just reinforces their negative stereotypes of Christians who think they've got it all together or they know everything, right? And, and it's fair, I, actually, I don't know. I haven't thought of that question before. I'd love to look into more, look into that a little more, right? That, that's a fair thing to say. Now, uh, where I got these questions from, there is this book called Tactics by Greg Kokel. It's not a big book, it's, it's actually a pretty small book. I really encourage you to get that and read through it. Gives you a lot more than just this. Like, how do you deal with a steamroller, right? The guy that keeps interrupting you. How do you talk to somebody, like you're, you wanna talk biology, but this guy's got like PhD in, in biochemistry or something like that, like what do you do, right? What about, how do you deal with people that keep citing statistics, right? One step after another, after another, like how do you deal with that? That book will get you pretty well equipped. It, you just need to do pra some practice, but you'll get the hang of it pretty soon. That way you don't have to know a lot of things. Now, if you, study some apologetics, your conversational tactics will become even stronger because you know how to uh, discover some flaws in their thinking or something like that. And you can do that by asking some good questions in a non-threatening way if you control your tone well enough. Right? Thank you for that question. Anybody else? Leaders, feel, feel free to ask questions, too. You have another one? Great. <laughs> so what if I'm talking to someone and they give me all these reasons, like the guy did in the video we watched, mm -hmm. um, but there's so 
Yeah. So the question is, like, what do you do when our friends have a bit of an emotional wound or they have some kind of emotional reason not to believe in Christianity or any, any faith for that matter? Uh, that's actually a really good point because when I come across different types of atheists and agnostics, um, it, it's actually very seldom that their reasons for holding to atheism or rejecting Christianity rather is completely intellectual. Now, remember what Mr. Mehta said. He said, like, I've never heard an atheist say, I became an atheist because of these emotional reasons or because I just wanted to sin. But they all say it's because I just don't have enough evidence. I'm like, hmm, I would actually expect that, right? Like, what sounds more respectable, right? Um, I've been having some emotional struggles with this. Or, you know what? I've been, having, I've been thinking, and I've been having some intellectual problems with Christianity. Which one sounds more respectable? In fact, J. Werner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. He was an atheist until he was 35. He studied the Gospels as a detective, and he came to his professional conclusion that these are legit eyewitness testimonies. That's how he became a Christian. And you know what he said? Because uh, an atheist came at him, right? Uh, there's just not enough evidence, yada, yada, yada. And he said, those were my words. Right? Those were my words. I, a, a human being is never as simple as all heart or all mind. It's usually a combination of those two, right? And so don't be surprised if they have some emotional baggage. That's often, and the intellectual kind of objections are often smokescreens. So then sometimes people ask me, then, Steve, why do you do what you do? Because really what you need to deal with are those emotional things behind the intellectual objections. I'm like, well, the reason for that is because, for one, I need to know what it is that I believe. And number two, in the course of our dis discussion, usually if I can kind of dispel the smokescreen, it becomes obvious to both this person and to me that the real reason is not an intellectual one. That's happened before. Does that make sense? So then how do you actually deal with the emotional baggage? Well, that's a bit tougher because it depends from person to person. It depends on what it is. And that's why it's so important for you to build a trusting relationship with this person, right? And if you can identify where this comes from, just be sensitive to that, right? Um, and, and just, that also should help you set the right kind of expectation. It's, it's not just like, uh, you know, like I, I need to give him all these arguments. No, maybe that's not the best way to go about it. Right? So sometimes you have to kind of play, play it wisely. Now, I really love what Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 say, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, right? Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, <laughs> seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our speech should always be gracious, should be seasoned with salt, so that we, we know how we ought to answer each person. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, to a Jew I became like a Jew, to a Gentile I became like a Gentile. I, 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 I became all things to all people, right? So that I might save some. It's biblical. You can't just one size fits all and just run with it. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Do you have any other books to suggest? Okay. Any books that I would suggest? Yes, lots. Are you ready to write this down? Um, I started with I started with the Case for Faith, Case for Christ books by Lee Strobel. Start with those, and actually pay attention to the people that he's interviewing. Because they wrote tons of books on different issues. Check out what their expert areas of expertise are and see what they've written on that topic. Right? If you've finished those two books, I would recommend something like On Guard by William Lane Craig. Right? Um, William Lane Craig, he, he's a, a, something of a hero of mine. Okay, um, and he's done lots of debates on university campuses, and he, he's just a really sharp thinker, and he's humble, and he's just like, I, I've met him in person, he's just a really, an all-around good guy to be around, 
On Guard by William Lane Craig. Um, now, these days, it's really popular for our atheist friends to attack the Bible, especially going to the Old Testament and kind of digging up the supposed uh, atrocities in the Old Testament, like Joshua and the Israelites going into the Promised Land and slaughtering men and women, children, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, for that, I would recommend this book called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan. Paul Copan. Copan is spelled C-O-P-A-N. Is God a Moral Monster? It's, it's not a terribly thick book. And this is one of those books that you don't just read, you need to study, right? But if you can actually slug through that, you're, it's going to really help you. It's going to give you a really solid place to start from in terms of how you deal with the... Yeah.